2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we're going to discuss supplement interactions with nutraceutical formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn the top tips for the best spring brunch with registered dietitian Shauna Lindzen. We'll talk about RSV outcomes with Dr. Robert Lamb. And lastly, we'll find out the proper way to do spring pruning with organic master gardener, Melissa Cameron. Before we get to that, here are your tonic quick shots getting good sleep can play a role in supporting your heart and overall health and maybe even how long you live according to a new research that's being presented at the american college of cardiology's annual scientific session together with the world congress of cardiology the study found that young people who have more beneficial sleep habits are incrementally less likely to die early moreover The data suggests that about 8% of deaths from any cause could be attributed to poor sleep patterns. Eating a traditional Mediterranean-type diet, rich in foods such as seafood, fruit, and nuts, may help reduce the risk of dementia by almost a quarter, a new study has revealed. Experts at Newcastle University found that individuals who ate a Mediterranean-like diet had up to 23% lower risk for dementia than those who didn't. This research published by BMC Medicine is one of the biggest studies of its kind, as previous studies have typically been limited to small sample sizes and low numbers of dementia cases. Scientists in this particular study analyzed data from 60,298 individuals from the UK Biobank, a large cohort, including individuals from across the UK who had completed a dietary assessment. Social relationships influence physical health, but questions remain about the nature of this connection. New research in social psychological and personality science suggests that the way you feel about your close relationships may be affecting the way your body functions. Research found that on average, people with more positive experiences and fewer negative experiences reported lower stress, better coping, and lower systolic blood pressure reactivity, leading to better physiological functioning in daily life. By contrast, variability, or daily ups and downs, in negative relationship experiences like conflict were especially predictive of outcomes like stress, coping, and overall systolic blood pressure. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles And conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, Gordon. How are you doing?
0: Great, Jamie. It's nice to be back.
2: Yeah. So sometimes we talk about specific ailments and sometimes we talk about specific supplements. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to cover supplement interactions, which are concerns for everybody who takes supplements, and also some of the concerns. That you hear from seniors who take supplements. Does that make does that sound like a plan?
0: Sounds like a plan. Let's see how far we can get with this today. Everybody I've always said always looks for the one magical supplement that's gonna do everything for everybody. It does not exist. I speak to whenever I speak to anybody who thinks of going on a supplement regimen. What you have to do is to take a wide variety of supplements as you possibly can. And sometimes people get tired of taking supplements because they have to take such a wide variety. So they just want to skinny it down to one. Most people, if you are eating well, sleeping well, in good health, you really, you know, you take supplements as insurance, not because you need to get it into you. For example, even if you're older and you eat well, you don't really need that much supplements as long as you're eating well. But unfortunately, a lot of us as we get older, we don't eat as much as we used to. We don't eat the variety of foods that we used to. So sometimes you need to get some extra supplements into you. So I always say to everybody, start off with getting a good multivitamin. The problem with multivitamins is that you have a large variety of vitamins, etc., but you don't get it in a large enough quantity. And, and people are always worried about whether they take too much of this or too much of that. The nice thing about most of the vitamins and so on that you find out there, for you to overdose on any of them, like a multivitamin, you got to take larger quantities, which is practically impossible. And I use the word practically because nothing is impossible, right? But if you take the standard dose, you know, you could take two or three times the standard dose without any ill effects. No, I don't want to advocate that because if I start saying that, you know, people will say one capsule is good, two is better, five is great. And next thing you know, right. somebody's taking so much, they get into trouble, and then all of a sudden it's my fault, right? Because they said, well, Dr. Chang said we could take more reasonable amounts. And anything you take in reasonable amounts is not a bad thing.
2: Well, you know, the Bussin family motto is more is better. More. (laughs) But when it comes to supplements, I think you have to be reasonable, for sure.
0: You do. But don't only stop at supplements as in vitamins and minerals. You should also look at some of the herbal things, right? For example, herbal things are very special. For example, people who have problems being tired, no energy, etc. There are several things you can take. And the one that just comes to my mind all the time is ginseng. Ginseng is something that's been out there for a long time. It's tried and true. And the nice thing about ginseng is if you take too much, you find that you have way too much energy in the sense that you can't sleep at night or so, just cut back. Use common sense. Just cut back. Or, you know, sometimes people can't sleep, and they say, well, what's the best thing to help me sleep? Well, I said there are several herbs that will help you sleep. However, why can't you sleep is, is probably the question you should ask as opposed to looking for that magic bullet. Because sometimes people can't sleep because they're stressed out. So if you take something like a ginseng, it's, it's a um, adaptogen. It might help you sleep better at night. And no, that sounds counterintuitive because it says, "Oh, if I if I take the ginseng, I get more energy." But the last thing you need is more energy. So what you do is you take the ginseng in the morning, gives you more energy. You run around all day. Come nighttime, you're tired. You sleep better, right? Yep. There are other herbs you could take which will directly help you sleep. So things like valerian will help you sleep. You know, there's a whole bunch of different herbs. Uh, I am one of those people who advocate for blends of herbs or combinations. And the reason I like combinations is because there are many different pathways which some of these herbs will work. And if you take a combination product, Chances are it'll work on you just because there's so many different mechanisms or pathways in which it'll come down and help you out.
2: Makes sense. Gordon, if somebody is in the store and they're considering picking up some supplements, whether it's an herbal remedy or a mineral or a vitamin, do they need to consult their doctors first?
0: For most stuff that's approved by Health Canada, you don't really, you don't really need to okay, unless you have special cases, right? There, there's always special cases, okay? There are some people mm-hmm. who, if you take the recommended doses, you're probably okay, right? But I always say, if you are in bad health or you have some major health issues, it doesn't hurt to let your doctor know that you're on this particular medication or so. Now, after having said that, you know, there's a, people are afraid, right? I like to tell people if you are, for example, having blood clotting issues and so on, and people say, oh, the one that comes to my mind is vitamin E, stop taking vitamin E because it it, uh, makes your blood clotting, uh, stops the the clotting process. I said, a little bit of vitamin E is not a bad thing. and Plus, when you're taking blood clotting products, medications, they check your blood clotting time anyway so they can balance it out for you Anyway, but it doesn't hurt to let your, your doctor know that you're on any of, these, any of these supplements.
2: Some medications, you know, when you pick up the bottle and you're reading them, and some supplements will have cautions about interactions. So how, how do you navigate that?
0: Okay, this is my scientific hat I'm putting on right now. Okay. Uh, any supplement you take, there's always a theoretical interaction with the medication that you're, gonna, you, you're consuming and I use the word theoretical, okay? Mm -hmm. It's just like when you take meds, medications, they'll say you can potentially have the side effect. And I do know, and I use the word potential for side effects in the sense that even medications, when you take it, not everybody who takes a medication gets a side effect. Because if it did, Health Canada would never approve it, okay? So there's always a potential side effect. Just remember, if you see the side effect, or you see something, is, is not you're not feeling well with, with it, just, it's easy. Cut back or stop taking the supplement. So if you see any interaction between the supplement and any potential product you're taking, a medication, just stop, cut back. The nice thing about any of these interactions, you don't go from taking the product, getting a, a bad interaction, and being hospitalized just from one dose. You get lots of warning okay so if you if you feel that that you're not feeling you are the source etc stop taking it see if it disappears and if it does disappear and you really want the supplement because it's for some reason start taking a, a lower dose and see if the symptoms reappear if the symptoms reappear then stop taking the supplement altogether there because there's ample alternatives that you can use out there, there it's not only one magic ingredient out there for everybody
2: Okay, so let's talk about some of the supplements that some of our older listeners are either considering taking or concerned about taking. Uh, Let's go through them one by one, and you can sort of give us your insight as to whether or not it's appropriate and whether there's any issues, okay?
0: Okay, we'll try.
2: Let's start with calcium. What should we look for, and is there anything we need to take with our calcium?
0: Off the top of my head, most people who are taking calcium... Probably won't have any major side effects, except for people who who have kidney stones. There are studies to show now that some people who take um, high doses of calcium may end up with kidney stones. And I stress the word high doses. Okay, there's even yep. uh, some studies coming out saying that you shouldn't be taking calcium anymore for osteoporosis. Again, it's all boils down to dosage. The current guidelines were that you were taking 1,200 milligrams of calcium per day. Really, you probably don't need to take that much, all right? Just because they say you should take it, you can cut back and, and go half of it or even a quarter of it for, for most of us. And I stress the word most of us. One of the things I, I know a lot of seniors take is um, glucosamine, et cetera, all right, for the joints, okay? And the issue with glucosamine is that, again, no side effect that I have ever seen or, or heard reported, right? So that one is probably okay. Um, I know for joints, so a lot of people just take the glucosamine or they take it with chondroitin. But a lot of people have issues with joint. There's always a, a pain component in there. Anytime there's a pain component, that means there's inflammation. Any time there's inflammation, you take an anti-inflammatory. Now, there are a lot of drugs that are anti-inflammatory, but the problem with a lot of anti-inflammatory drugs is that it, uh, it causes stomach problems with a lot of people, okay, and so a lot of people st- uh, want to avoid these anti-inflammatory drugs. But you can use some anti-inflammatory herbs, which work just as good, and the one that comes to my mind is turmeric. But again, I would say take something that has other herbs involved with it not just turmeric because if you take the just turmeric again some people may get reflux because some people do have issues with, with reflux with turmeric okay so you take it with food if that's the case or you take it in combination with other herbs and you get much better results if you take it in combination with other herbs so th- those are some of the ones just quickly off the top of my head I could think of. I mean, then there's the vitamins, you know, like the vitamin C. Again, most people take vitamin C. If you are uh, a advocate of Linus, uh, a follower of Linus Pauling, he advocated up to like 20 grams a day. And in all fairness, that's great for him, but I would not advocate that type of quantity. I would say probably a thousand milligrams a day. Now, some people will take that. Some people take more of it. You know, it just depends on the individual. Again, high doses of vitamin C sometimes have been linked with kidney stones, etc. But again, if you're taking smaller quantities, chances of that happening are slim to none.
2: I take vitamin D three. Uh, that's you know, I, I don't take many supplements, but that's one that I take every day because I understand it works with so many other minerals. Do you want to speak to that for,
0: for sure. a minute? Vitamin D three is probably one of your safer ones. Now. I know it accumulates in the, the fatty tissue, right? And right now, the current Health Canada guidelines is up to 2,000 IU a day, okay? In all fairness, there are studies, people have been taking 20,000 IU a day without any ill effects. And in all in fairness, if you were to take off your shirt on a nice sunny day and the sun is beating down on you, your body itself produces anywhere up to about 200,000 I.U., right, in a, say, about a four-hour session of shirt-off, right? And I know, being when I was younger, I could sit in the sun all day without the shirt, and I get hit with a 200,000 I.U. without major ill effects, other than a, na- a nasty sunburn, okay? As we, the, the problem with us as we get older or even living here in, in um, Canada in the winter time, we do not get as much vitamin D3 as we need. And so we're always vitamin D3 um, deficient. So it's a good one that people should be taking on an ongoing basis, regular basis, right? If you're taking anywhere from five to 10,000 IU, you probably won't have any any ill effects, right? But again, if we want to do this according to Health Canada guidelines, right? 2,000 IU is what they advocate. But as as I said, people take, more more without any, any side effects.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: My pleasure, Jamie. It's always a pleasure to chat on the, your show.
2: Feel the same way. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return we'll discuss the top tips for spring brunch on The Tonic. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer Store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit ZoomerStore.com and click on PharmaZ and then click on the circle of care pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose new roots herbal, proudly Canadian and family owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state of the art ISO accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network, and enjoy seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. You can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindsen.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you?
3: I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so spring has sprung. Um, I know this because every single show I watch on the Food Network is spring themed, like all the baking championships and everything. And, uh, you know, what the hell? Maybe we should, like, keep going with that theme of spring. What do you think?
3: Yes, we're going almost from soups to salads. Everything's green now.
2: Yeah. So let's let's talk about brunch. A lot of people's favorite meal of the day. How do you navigate brunch? Which vegetables do you like using for your brunch?
3: Well, in the springtime, I especially like using asparagus, the spring vegetable. In Ontario, they're, you know, they're so fresh and it's, it's great to support the local farmers. And I also like the leeks and the garlic scapes and all different types of lettuces and just the traditional ones, like carrots, beets, onions, mushrooms. I incorporate all of those into a brunch menu.
2: I love all of those. With with like some caveats, but I draw the line at fiddleheads. I don't understand the allure. We're all, you know,
3: they're slimy. I don't like them either. And you actually have to be careful. If you don't cook them properly, you can get a reaction from them. I actually, really, yeah, they have to be steamed or boiled. Like they have to, you have to get rid of a toxic chemical. And I actually got. I'm going to call it poisoned by one from a restaurant here in Toronto years ago. Yeah.
2: To my mind, the payoff isn't there. (laughs) You know, like if you have a poisonous food (laughs) that you have to like really prepare it, Better be delicious, otherwise I'm not exactly sure. And who's the pioneer? I'm not
3: going to go there again yet (laughs) with the. Who's
2: the pioneer who decided that this poisonous food was okay to eat? Like that's the other thing, right? Like I know. At some point, somebody said that thing that is really upsetting our stomachs. If we do it this way, it's actually not bad. But it's I know.
3: they're so cute stand. too. They're, they're pretty because they're, yeah. the, they're swirled. They're a nice looking vegetable, but you're right. The trade-off yeah. is too scary. I don't go there. I don't go to f- fiddleheads.
2: <laughs> so I'm, I'm a recent asparagus convert. I, I never liked it. I, I found them like they can be woody, you yes. know, if you, if you don't feel the outer skin or, you know, if, if they're extra thick, it's kind of like you really have to work on them too. I like them when they're super thin. And it's true The
3: the thicker the asparagus, it's more difficult. Like you have more of a woody texture and it depends where they're grown because some are really Mm -hmm. thin, some are really thick. So I think I like the thin ones as well. And I use them in so many different recipes and there's so many ways to cook them, but they're one of those vegetables you don't want to overcook because they really lose their integrity and they lose their Mm -hmm. color. So I like to, to put them into like, an omelet or just steam them on their own, roast them, barbecue them, add olive oil, Parmesan cheese to them. Tastes just wonderful. Yeah.
2: So two go-tos. I grill them with a little bit of lemon juice on them and Mm -hmm. olive oil, salt and pepper. And then I finish off with uh, actually Romano shavings. That's one way. Yeah. And akin to that, I will pop them in the water that I'm boiling my pasta in for cacio and pepe um, and then toss them with peas with the cacio and pepe. And that's a pretty good way of getting some greens into what is otherwise a very starch heavy uh, dish.
3: And that does scream spring, right? Like the green peas, the asparagus, it's yeah. Lightens up the pastas. Sounds delicious. And I would put some I'm sure you do put some lemon zest on there as well.
0: Yep.
2: Yep. Naomi's all about the lemon. We can't get away from it. Um,
3: It brightens (laughs) everything up.
2: Yeah. Okay. sure. So what are you going to be planting this year? I I basically go from like what failed last year just gets culled out and then I'll see if I can replicate. But, But what are you thinking of planting in your garden this year?
3: So it's funny because I have a lot of animals in my backyard, so the herbs aren't hit by the animals, they yeah. grow really well. So I typically put the herbs such as chives, I'm just thinking what else I put, so chives, basil, parsley. My cilantro usually doesn't do so well, but I do try cilantro. And I I stop doing kind of the summer fruits, like strawberries, because the animals eat them before they they even turn at all. Like they eat them while they're white, unfortunately. So... I get really excited by planting things, but then I have to kind of like stop myself and remember which animals we <laughs> ate which herb.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of bunnies in our neighborhood. But then yeah. again, there's a lot of coyotes eating the bunnies. So there you I go. Know. <laughs> um, so I have decided I've been going with the dinosaur kale. We've yeah. been planting a bunch of those. And they're, it it's super hardy. Yeah, good. super okay. hardy. You have to appreciate, like a lot of people think that like the lettuces and the cruciferous ve- leafy vegetables like the chards and kales need a lot of light but they actually don't they do better in partial sa- shade oh, um, yeah. and so like we use those and they tend to like you know like a good hardy kale plant will like give you kale leaves like from spring well maybe not spring but summer all the way through to late fall oh, that's um, good we also do like surprisingly well with with hot peppers In this climate, I'm like always shocked, Mm -hmm. but we get jalapenos and serranos and poblanos to grow, which I find surprising, but they need a lot more light.
3: Yeah. And it's fun to like incorporate that into like when you're planning a brunch menu. I love yeah. I I love to, you know, it depends. Like a little later in the spring, you're going to get more things growing. At the beginning of the spring, you still have to use you know the grocery store rather than the garden. But yeah, I love to throw oh another one I didn't mention is um, fresh dill. That goes it goes fantastic in something like an egg frittata. Love
2: no, dill we're we're, we're a dill we're, we're we're a dill free house. I, oh, really? Yeah, it, some
3: people don't yeah. like dill, so you guys don't like yeah. dill. Yeah, no,
2: dill or dill or cilantro. verboten. Oh, you um, thought I hate
3: cilantro, Gene? Too bad.
2: <laughs> and tarragon, truthfully. What are your go-to foods when you're serving brunch? What do you like? to So put
3: out there? I I love to do an egg frittata, and we actually I published a recipe in the Tonic for that and i also like to do it's trending now but a sheet pan pancake so if you're having a lot of people it's really easy to throw a sheet pan pancake into the oven and i also i teach that in my cooking classes so if people go to cottages in the summer and they don't want to sit there and flip pancakes it's a great idea to throw it into the oven and you could pair that with like a green salad and a massive fruit plate that type of thing
2: yeah, we, uh, Naomi makes these bacon and cheddar waffles that you top oh, with poached good. eggs. And I have to say, it's like not healthy, not a health yeah, and wellness it, but they're fun. proposition, but it's pretty delicious. And and yeah. again, if you have it with, if you balance it with salad and fruit and, you know, I guess yeah, that's for, where the health goes.
3: Yeah. For people who don't like to cook, it's also, it's a good idea to go to the store, pick up a few things and you can even Like take something out of a package and put it on a serving plate and it looks like you've been slaving over it like all morning if you're having guests. And then just decorate it with fresh herbs or microgreens or edible flowers because it will look like you made it. So you don't necessarily so what we, have to make everything. What are we talking
2: about now? Are we talking about like go, buying a quiche or something like that? Or? Yeah,
3: a quiche or even lots of the kind of local grocery stores sell like lasagnas. You could do like a, a mac and cheese bake, that type of thing, or even different salads like quinoa salads or Greek salads. There are a lot of f- fresh options that you can get that aren't necessarily like ultra processed. They were made by somebody in a kitchen. It's a little bit more expensive, but if you're short on time or you don't like to cook, just embellish it with some fresh herbs and it looks like, you know, you were slaving all morning on it.
2: I'm going to give a, like, I, I'm not getting paid for this endorsement, but yeah. if you are going to pick up a lasagna, I highly recommend Bologna Pastaficio, yes. which is on Dufferin.
3: Yeah, Dufferin and Lawrence. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everybody in
2: the neighborhood goes there and it is the best lasagna in the city.
3: Yeah. And they make Um, their noodles from scratch. And it's just they're they're very good. Very good. I agree. I would agree.
2: When you talked about mac and cheese, you actually reminded me I I sometimes make a pasta al forno, so I won't use cheddar. I'll use like if we have scraps of mozzarella Mm -hmm. or Parmesan or Romano. And then I will fold in like mushrooms, kale, leeks, and you can kind of make mac and cheese a little bit healthier like yeah. that. Maybe some peas.
3: And you can put so, tomato yeah. slices on top for the acid.
2: Yeah, but you wouldn't put the tomatoes in because the water content messes everything up. But yeah.
3: Exactly. You have to put them on top. I also, my favorite mac and cheese for a brunch would be putting Gruyere cheese in there. Delicious. Yeah, Delicious. Like it's a mild Swiss cheese.
2: It is. not. It's expensive though. That makes it a lot more expensive. If but you buy it but at
3: it's expensive. I'm a big
2: Costco fan. Oh, man, we're throwing out all the endorsements. This week. OK, thanks so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to discuss the next time you're on the show?
3: Let's talk about the difference between snacks and treats. So is there such a thing as a healthy snack?
2: That sounds good. That was uh, Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break. But when we return, we'll discuss RSV outcomes on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer Store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit ZoomerStore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Bussen.
2: There's been a lot of attention and concern surrounding respiratory syncytial virus, typically viewed as a virus that impacts babies and infants. This year, we've heard more about the. Uh, Significance RSV can have on older Canadians, especially those living in long term care facilities. For older adults, RSV can exacerbate underlying conditions, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma, and congestive heart failure. RSV uh, can lead to severe outcomes such as pneumonia, hospitalization, loss of independence, and death. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Lamb, a family physician and past president of the Canadian Geriatrics Society about RSV risks and what we can do to limit the virus impact. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you?
4: Thank you very much, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be on your show.
2: So what is RSV and why have we been hearing so much about it lately?
4: Okay. Well, I'm a family doctor, so I just want to say that I'm I'm not an immunologist or infectious disease physician, but I have seen this virus uh, in my work. So uh, it is a, it's a virus. Uh, it is a, a very common one, which can cause uh, severe pneumonia, but usually it is asymptomatic and causes only mild cold-like symptoms in healthy individuals. So why it's come to be more popular at the moment, I mean, it's always been around. It uh, has been associated with children in in the past but with the aging population now you know there's more elderly uh, people than there are children since around 2016 so I, I, I think it, it it's coming out and it's a disease that uh, is especially uh, affecting uh, patients who are vulnerable so if your immune system is not mature or if uh, it's lowered. If you have uh, cancer or you have heart and lung disease, then it can be uh, especially dangerous. Yes, it can cause uh, pneumonia, but it can also cause heart attacks and strokes by causing inflammation and clots. And this was uh, uh, not a well-known fact in in the past. Uh, The other important thing is that while it can cause death, oftentimes probably up to a third of patients Will experience ongoing decline if they're admitted to hospital with RSV, even after six months of being discharged, and living with this functional impairment is a real problem. That uh, that uh, uh, it, it is, it is almost more of a problem that uh, that uh, people don't initially recognize.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I heard what you said, and 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 I think like what you started with is that RSV has always been around. Mm-hmm. And I think to a large extent, it's in the press because now the press uh, is used to dealing with these issues, unfortunately, as a result of, you know, how the elderly were impacted by, for example, SARS and COVID. Right. So so now, you know, everybody's attuned to it. Perhaps it's just become more newsworthy. But that doesn't negate, I think, uh, the health risk to, to older adults. Why is RSV a threat? To those in long-term care facilities.
4: Well, it's uh, generally uh, very dangerous for anybody who, who's uh, vulnerable, in, 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 as far as their immune system and other diseases. And when you're admitted to hosp or admitted to long-term care, and I do work <clears throat> work in a long-term care facility, you're there because you have some functional impairment, and you're also in an area that is relatively closed. So right. we experience this, and I experienced this uh, during the COVID outbreaks, which we had uh, in the home. We would lock off or uh, close off the nursing home, but you still need nursing care, and you, you, these patients uh, require their meals and and everything to be prepared. So uh, there's going to be some transmission uh, of viruses and sometimes we don't really know where it comes from. I I mean everybody gets tested and vaccinated, but um in, in in a small area like that it it can even if we isolate patients, it can it can spread very quickly. And uh, I was I was surprised with COVID. Um and uh it was it was very stressful uh, taking care of patients and I, I've had patients die of COVID and uh But now it's not so bad because most of the residents in the long-term care have been vaccinated as well as uh, our uh, nursing uh, home staff.
2: Is RSV any more contagious than the types of viruses and bacterial infections that you would expect to sort of whip around these long-term care facilities?
4: I would say so, yes. It is quite contagious. Now it's hard to have head-to-head studies. Okay, uh, um, these viruses—they they vary in size and shape, and uh, and um, there some of them are slow to start. Some of them cause fevers. RSV, for example, may not cause fever as often. So there's there's slight differences in all of them, but it, it's definitely a very common virus, and it's very uh, it's very contagious. Now, whether or not it will lead to a disease in in patients that results in a hospital admission, I do think so because there have been studies uh, uh, examining uh, multiple systematic reviews. So they would put all these studies together in a meta analysis, and it has been shown that RSV is it, it would result in as many hospital admissions and similar a mortality as. Uh, Influenza, for example, which uh, is very, very dangerous and has been uh, helped by uh, vaccination.
5: Okay.
2: So, uh, is there an RSV vaccine? Is that on the horizon or does it exist already?
4: Well, it doesn't exist already, but uh, it's been in the works uh, through multiple uh, pharmaceutical companies, but we don't have yet a vaccine. um, we don't even have an antiviral specific for, uh, RSV. You really have to have a healthy lifestyle if you want to prevent, uh, RSV at the moment. And that involves basically everything, you know, getting a good night's sleep and being active and, um, uh, eating healthy.
2: That makes sense. Difficult things to do if you're in a long-term care facility, I would imagine.
4: Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> There's some really active, uh, patients in the nursing home I, I had one uh, elderly resident play piano for me so we were <laughs> we were uh, okay. piano pieces <laughs> She was a good singer too
2: well that's good that's good to hear so you know RSV was in the news probably earlier this year is this still an ongoing issue or has some of the risk abated
4: I think it's uh, an ongoing risk because well one thing is that we're not masking as much as we did before and right. so the precautions that we had during the COVID outbreak, it really it worked for flu and RSV as well. I mean, they're, they're transmitted the same way through coughing and touching. And now that we're not masking, uh, it, the RSV has sort of been given the green light. And there'll, there'll be fluctuations, I'm sure, but we're not vaccinating for RSV. We're vaccinating for flu and COVID. So RSV is, I, I think, um, going to become much more more of a, an issue uh, in the future.
2: And forgive me, I'm, I'm not sure if we covered this yet or not. How is it transmitted? Is it airborne or is it or like
4: or, do you have to ingest yep. it? So it, certainly it, it is a virus or so you, you, droplets. So if you cough, uh, yeah. it will spread that way or it can drop down on the floor and, and, and live on surfaces. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's 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 spread uh, usually through being uh, in an area close to the patient or touching uh, any uh, other uh, places where the virus could fall on.
2: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and and letting us know about the risks of RSV.
4: Jamie, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: That was Dr. Robert Lamb. Uh, For more great interviews or articles, please visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss spring pruning on the tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa
2: Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Floret, and Toronto Life and The Tonic, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, She is the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. For more information, you can visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you?
5: I'm great, thanks, Jamie. Happy spring.
2: Yeah. So uh, this is the time of year where I look outside and I know that I have to do stuff But like we're in that in-between time where like maybe it's only five degrees out or maybe it's a deluge and I say manana. But there's some things we we can't really put off. And I think one of them is pruning. Am I right about that? You are. So, So what are some of the general pruning guidelines that we should be aware of?
5: Yeah. So let's just start with some obvious basics that are going to make this task both Easier and successful, and maybe curb some of that procrastination. You're starting. You're talking about. You're going to want to make sure before you head out to prune that your tools are both sharp and clean. And so, having your tools professionally sharpened can decrease not only your chance of injury, but it can also ensure that you're getting a really nice and neat cut on whatever plant matter you're pruning. So dull tools will actually crush the plant stems or tear the fibrous woody stems, which can cause damage and also can increase your plant or tree's susceptibility to disease. And I would say that clean tools also matter because they help you stop spreading disease. So clean your tools with that 70% isopropyl alcohol between any cuts and remove the rust from your tools. And, you know, every time you have them out, give them a good clean, dry them off, store them well so that they have some really great longevity. And then as far as pruning guidelines and techniques, I would say that, like, it's really important to sort of take a look at the shape of your plant or your tree or your hedge or your shrub and prune any branches that are potentially sort of crossing over or overlapping. Um, You'll often notice that new growth can come off of, branches in sort of a vertical way instead of horizontal or diagonal you could take those off and then of course we're looking to prune away anything that's dead diseased or damaged.
2: Okay so other than aesthetics you know maybe we've kind of skipped over this like what is the theory behind pruning like why do we do it?
5: Yeah so there are actually lots of reasons to prune, not just the ones I just mentioned. So I'm going to give you a few to consider. Uh, We want to prune to encourage fruiting and flowering. We want to prune to create a pattern for future growth, like a shape. Think about it that way. We want to prune to maintain plant health. And sometimes we want to prune to restrict growth. And then like I managed before, we really want to balance that growth. So you take a step back, Take a look at what you're pruning, making sure that your plant has a nice amount of balance, uh, sort of in a 360 degree way or depending on where it's situated. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reasons to consider pruning.
2: OK, so sometimes you have to call in the big guns. Um, <laughs> what, what's the criteria? When, when would I when, when is it a good idea to bring in a professional?
5: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I always lean to hiring a professional. When I'm pruning, I'm thinking about larger trees and shrubs. And I, I'm not really great with a chainsaw or a pole saw. So that is really when I'm picking up the phone. So yes, of course, there's great chainsaw safety courses out there. But most of us don't have that training. And I would further say that one of the benefits to hiring a professional is that they're going to be on hand to manage the debris from the pruning. So they can often bring chippers, holloway pruned limbs, greenery on the spot, and then i would also call in a professional an arborist for instance if i'm seeing an issue with my trees so if i'm seeing something that looks like illness sickness you know some strange die off things like that
2: where would i go for to to find out like like where where do you go what resources do you trust with respect to pruning
5: yeah so it's a really really big subject that we're trying to condense into a pretty small conversation um and uh so i think that really i've benefited from a book called pruning simplified by a guy by the name of stephen bradley and so it's a really good go-to pruning manual that has sort of a lot of the different varieties of shrubs plants hedges that most of us have in our gardens and our yards And it will tell you when to prune them. And then there's actually a dedicated diagram for each species that shows you where to make those cuts. And so I find that really helpful. That information is super hard to memorize for me anyway. So having that visual repair is really important.
2: Okay, so, you know, sometimes it's obvious that plants need pruning or trees need cutting back, but are there specific plants that you should be pruning and ones that maybe aren't or don't require
5: pruning? Sure. And it's, it's kind of funny, right? Because when we look to nature as our guide, you know, in a forest, pruning is not really a thing. Nature can cause wind destruction, storms, spires. But, you know, that's not really the conditions that we all have. We have ornamental gardens. So pruning is done to maintain an aesthetic and also to ensure that certain plants don't take over our garden designs. So who, who should you be pruning? If you've got climbers in your garden, climbing plants, you're going to definitely want to prune those to make sure uh, that they're attaching to the supports that you provide from them, but also so that they don't become overly invasive. And then other common plants that benefit from active pruning in your garden that you might be seeing around this time would be forsythia, which is pruned in the late spring or early summer Diarrhea, which is pruned in the early summer, and then your roses, which uh, are usually pruned late winter or early spring. As for the plants that are sort of low to no prune, many of us in southern Ontario have Japanese maples, and those are really kind of low intervention, and I would also say rhododendrons.
2: It's funny. I have a Japanese uh, maple that I planted in the front yard it was one of the first ornamental trees that that we put in when I started taking over the the garden, and then the city planted a skyline, honeysuckle or honey locust—I can't remember exactly which one—but one, it's
5: probably big. yeah.
2: Uh, and as it's gotten bigger, it's kind of taken some of the light away from the Japanese maple, and I'm finding that I'm I'm you know each summer. I'm losing some of the central branches of the Japanese
3: Aww. maple.
2: I'm, I'm sort of faced with a dilemma as to whether to prune or whether it's gonna grow back. And I, I'm sort of, I don't know, I'm just griping here. I'm just, I don't, I don't know if there's an <laughs> end.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, a lot of people do prune to improve light conditions in the city, right? Because the tree canopy can start one way and then five years later look very different in your yard. And especially if you're growing yeah. something that does love full sun, uh, investing in an arborist to come and make those cuts so that your prized sun loving plants can thrive is a really good idea it's a bit more complicated when we have trees that are on city property i know so i feel for you that's a tough situation
2: yeah no it's okay so here's here's an interesting fact i actually had them plant the city tree more on my property because i thought like i like the idea of having a big tree up front so I think I'm actually free to prune this one. That's the old lawyer in me taking that position. So um, so maybe maybe that's the answer. I, just, I maybe just need to get to it. So we are in April. Are we too late to prune, too early? Like, is there a timeline?
5: Yeah, it's a bit of a trick question, right? So when I was preparing to chat with you today, I really and truly wanted to come up with like an easy saying or like a maxim to share with you and the listeners about like, how to make this simplified. But the truth is, what works best for me and what I'll share with you is to spend the time and take a bio-inventory of what you have in the garden and then create a spreadsheet. I know it's so geeky. But (laughs) then you can kind of go through Stephen Bradley's book or whatever other resource that you have that you trust and sort of fill in where those ideal pruning times are, sort that column by date or season, and then... You can sort of just check off the list. I, I know it's nerdy, but I truly have not found a better way.
2: So but like should you be pruning in June? Like surely there is there a cutoff or am I just asking a stupid question?
5: Yeah, like it's it's so dependent on each plant, right? So okay. Um, okay. I would say that, you know, I don't want you touching your roses after a certain time. Like a late late winter, early spring is the is the end time for roses, but if I look at something like a spirea it would be early summer so there just isn't like this sort of one one time fits all uh you know i could also tell you that if you had shrub hydrangeas in your yard early spring is a good time to prune them um, versus having like a climbing hydrangea you would prune that late in the summer so it, it's just this part of the garden maintenance where we have to do the, the investment in time and research to make sure that we're pruning at the optimal time and in the optimal way.
2: Okay, so you just, if you've done anything today, you, you've reminded me <laughs> that I have to deal with my hydrangeas. Uh, thanks, so, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show today. What do you wanna talk about the next time you're on?
5: Uh, thanks, Jamie. Next time I'd love to talk about garden hacks.
2: Okay, that's a deal. That was uh, Melissa Cameron. To learn more about Melissa, please visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Shauna Lindzen, Dr. Robert Lamb, and Melissa Cameron. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The March-April issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson, wishing you a healthy and happy week.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.